Amen. Kip, thanks for writing that song a few years ago. Good morning, church. Laura, thank you wherever you are. Yeah, for blessing us at the table today. I know I've heard from people sometimes when they get a text message from the preacher saying, are you here this Sunday? It's one they, should they answer it or not? Uh, so thank you for answering it. And you spoke words today that bless moms in this room, but it went way beyond moms calling us as a church to how do we pour into a younger generation to help them be sold out for Jesus. So thank you for your words today. Um, to, where's, where's my wife? Casey, are you here today somewhere? Casey, Joy, Casey? Oh, you're over there today. Hey, babe. <laughs> All right. I haven't seen you yet today. You were asleep when I left. Uh, I'm so proud of you. You're, there's no one I w- would rather see um, nurturing and helping our children know about Jesus than you. So I love you so much. My mom's not here today. She was visiting over the weekend, but I think of the role my mom played in nurturing my faith. And I did not really begin to hear my mother pray. I don't remember the prayer she prayed as a young child, but I remember prayers hearing my mother pray later on in high school because that's probably when her kids needed their mom to start like verbally declaring Jesus over us. Um, But this was around the the mid-90s when there was a shift in a lot of theology in some of our churches where people were reading books like Experiencing God and um, uh, books by Rick Warren like The Purpose Driven Life. And this whole idea of personal relationship with God and intimacy with God was beginning to shape prayer lives more than it had in the past. And hearing my mom pray in my late teens began to develop a prayer life in me of what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. I asked my wife last night, I said, who comes to mind of people, not your mom and not my mom, but people who have been a motherly figure to you? And she just started rattling off names. Some were here, some were back in her hometown. And then I began to think of people within the life of this church and beyond who have been a figure for me and my kids. And I know this is a special day for a lot of us, and I know this day, and I'm grateful for Anna uh, giving voice to it earlier. I I know for some of you, this day brings a lot of different emotions. Some of you experience grief today of a mother who's not here, and some of you who, just for a number of reasons, there are a lot of emotions we feel, and we we give voice to those today. We acknowledge them, and we do have prayer tables set up, and at any point this morning or at the end of this worship service, if you want to leave something in there for us to pray over, we take those very, very seriously. Uh, beginning a new series today, and it's not on Mother's Day, but uh, the topic's not on that. I'm beginning a new series called Christ and Culture. I'm excited about the next few weeks and what this will mean for the life of our church, and it's a series I've been looking forward to preaching for a long time because I think we need some challenges of what it means to live out kingdom life as we walk streets in the 21st century. Um, I want you to open your Bibles to a very familiar place, but I want to use this to lay a foundation for the next few weeks. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. It's known as the Great Commission. You've heard sermons on this in the past. Many churches hang banners on maybe the the back of their church so that when you leave, you're reminded of the mission that we are on. And I want to spend just a little time in Matthew chapter 28 uh, with us this morning and lay a foundation for what we will build on in the next few weeks. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 and 17, it says this. Uh, Because a lot of times when we think about the Great Commission, we begin in verse 18. But that's not where the commission begins. Verse 16, it says this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And let me just stop right there before we go on. I just want to point out a few things. And one, I've pointed this out in the past, and we need the reminder. I love the fact that these 11 come into the presence of Jesus, and they worship him, but it also says some of them doubted. Just imagine what the last few days had been like for these men, right? 
Like seeing the Savior, their King, uh, die and then he comes back to life. This doesn't happen all the time. And I love that Jesus didn't see them worshiping and then know that some were doubting and then separate the doubters from the worshipers. Jesus commissions all of them, which is good news for a lot of us in the room today. That Jesus commissions you in the midst of your uncertainty and your doubts. He has a mission for you. It's, an, it's not about the church trying to figure everything out so that God can give us an appointment or an assignment. God gives it to you anyway. But before that, I want you to see what happens in verse 16. It says that these 11 went up on a mountain to meet with Jesus. Now, uh, for most of my life, for a lot of my life, I, I just had this image in my head of when the Great Commission happened. Jesus is already with the disciples. He's with the apostles. And they walk up on a mountain. And then Jesus gives them this commission. And then Jesus ascends into the heavens. But the way it goes is that the 11 are going to meet with Jesus. So Jesus is not walking with them. Jesus is on the mountain. So it's like Jesus has set up an appointment. He's set up a meeting. Now, the way they did it then isn't like, hey, meet me at 8.15 a.m. or noon. They didn't have clocks or watches or iPhones or things like that. But at some point, Jesus said, I need you to meet me in this place. And here's what's so important. I don't want you to miss this this morning. This is how God would do things. Throughout the Bible, God met with people on mountains. He set up appointments. He set up assignments. He set up meetings. I need you to come to this mountain to meet with me. You don't have to know your Bible super well, just a little bit. You know, God met with Abraham on mountains, Elijah on mountains. He met with his people on mountains. Jesus does stuff on mountains. So this is how God would do things. So Jesus isn't walking with them. He tells them, I need you to come and meet with me. I need you to believe that today, that there aren't a lot of mountains around Memphis, but there's an invitation coming from God. I want you to come and meet with me in this place. Can you come and just be with God? Um, this goes all the way back to a time when God met with Moses. In the book of Exodus, there's a lot that happens on a mountain. In fact, maybe half of Exodus is written from a mountain. And in Exodus chapter 24, and I would love for you to go home later and just read all of chapter 24. There are these beautiful images and beautiful truths of God meeting with his people and revealing himself to them and eating with his people. I don't know what it was like, but it's marvelous. But in Exodus chapter 24, verse 12, here's what it says. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. So this is when the Ten Commandments are going to be given. And God sets up this appointment. He sets up this meeting. Now, here's where, um, so, so here's how sermon prep often goes for me. I, I, right now, I've studied the Bible from the New Living Translation. Uh, I read the Bible from the New Living Translation. I study with the NRSV. I usually preach from the NIV because the majority of you do. But then every week, I often go back to the Greek or Hebrew just to see what's going on there. So I I want to make sure that what I'm offering up to you is as true to the words as possible. Now, I only had three semesters of Hebrew, which is just enough to get me in trouble sometimes. So it's good for me to have friends who know a bunch of Hebrew and they're really good at it. So often what I do here is I reach out to my friend Lance, who uh, teaches, he's a professor at HST. So I shoot him an email because the last thing you want when you preach in a church with professors is to say something about Hebrew and you see people doing this out in the audience, like, you know. <laughs> Which I know most of you, you don't know. I can say anything about Hebrew and you don't know if I'm telling the truth or not, but professors do. All right? So I was looking in the Hebrew and it, most of our versions have something like God saying, hey, I want you to, to, to stay there or, or wait there. But the, the word literally means be here, which doesn't make a lot of sense in English if you think about it. Like I need you to come up to the mountain and then you be here. So I bounce this off Lance and, and he's, 
he shoots back and he's affirming this, this it, it is be there. It's like be right here. And then Lance had this statement because I was curious. I was like asking him, look, I don't want to go too far with this. But is this a time when, when God's saying, hey, I don't want you just to be here in your body, but I want you to be fully present. And I think there's a lot of times where God wants that from us. But, but Lance made one statement to me that I just love it. I wish it was my own, all right? But here's, here's what Lance said. He said, I think God in this moment is saying this. God's not looking for a quick visit with Moses. He wants Moses to come and stay there for a little while. Be right here. And if you go on to read the rest of Exodus, this isn't a 15-minute meeting God sets up with Moses. It goes on for days. Six days and then God visits him again. 40 days Moses is in this place. So here's my question to you, and I'm not trying to throw guilt on anybody. How hard is it for us to stay in the presence of God for two minutes or five? And how is the word of God, the voice of God coming to you today saying, be here? Can you just be here for a little while? Because here's how a lot of our prayer lives go. Because we live in a time when it is all about predict, pro, uh, productivity. How can we produce? We're going from one thing to another. We think sitting still is a waste of time a lot of times. And, and, and let's be honest. A lot of times it's hard for us to stay still in the presence of God for two minutes or five minutes. Maybe ten minutes. But what we want to do when we pray... Even if it's five minutes, is God, I'm here and I need you to reveal yourself to me. Show me your ways. Change my heart. Fix me. Uh, God, I need to discern because I got some big decisions to make. And in five minutes, we want God to speak all this truth and reveal all this character in five minutes. And I think God sometimes looking at us, I, I, I need more than that. Can't do it in five. Go and try that with any physician or dentist or nutritionist. Hey, I got three minutes for you today, and I need you to fix everything that's going on in me. It just doesn't work. And how is God's voice coming to you today saying, hey, I need you to be right here. Be here. Because there's so much God wants to do with us. I think a question for a lot of us is like, who's invited to the mountain with God? Because you read the Bible, it seems like it's the prominent leaders who were invited to the mountain with God. It's Moses and Abraham, and now it's the 11 apostles. But you have people in the Psalms who often sing about this, write about it. And sometimes the question they ask is, who can, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can go there? One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm chapter 24. It's the question that drives a lot of Psalm 24. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? And here's what it says, verse 3 and 4. Who may stand in God's holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God, who swears falsely, someone who speaks truth. And what Jesus has done through his death, burial, and resurrection, through loving the church, launching the church, saving people, is it's not just the prominent leaders who are invited to the mountain to meet with God. It's the people of God who are invited to the mountain to meet with God. So, and sometimes people read the Great Commission, and they're like, that's what God gave the 11 apostles, and now we need to read that. And, and, and the church is blessed by the Great Commission. It's not just for the 11, it's for the church. I don't think the church at any point in history, especially early on, would have read the Great Commission and said, that was for the 11, and let's study history of what that meant for them. It, it's, it's for the church. And here's how it goes in verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, all authority. Uh, or Jesus says, um, then Jesus came to them, and Jesus said in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
So I, I don't know how this exchange happened, but at some point God gave all authority to Jesus. So Jesus could do with that authority whatever he wanted, right? He could establish and set up his kingdom however he wanted to. Jesus chooses to delegate. He takes his authority and he extends it to his church. And he says, therefore you go and you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus takes authority, he gives it to the church, he doesn't tell the church to go and invite people to come into the church and to wherever you are meeting and then teach them about Jesus. It's for the church to go wherever you go. Go talk to Rick Gillespie. Rick grabs me every few weeks it seems like because this great change happened in Rick's life when Rick saw that the Great Commission was not just about supporting missionaries, it's understanding that as we go about life as followers of Jesus, this is what we are called to live out every single day of our lives, anywhere we go, that we are, out, we are in this world to make disciples of Jesus. He gives this mission. If there are a few things I want you to write down today and reflect on, chew on, go talk to people about them later, it's this. When God anoints people, and when God saves people, God commissions people. God commissions what he saves. And another way to think about it, write it down, reflect on this, go talk to your friends about it after church. The anointing that God gives us is not for security alone. The anointing God gives us is for activation in the kingdom of God. Amen? This is about activation. And this is not a burden that now we have responsibility. This is not supposed to be a burden. This is a great privilege that God has anointed his church and has commissioned this church with what it needs to live out this in the world so people can be saved and delivered from every form of bondage. Um, so I want to use this over the next few weeks to talk about um, how we see, because I, I think this morning I, I want to talk just a moment about vision, because how we see God and how we see the Bible and how we see people in the world, it matters. The lenses we put on to view all this, it matters. I heard a story about a girl that early on in elementary school, I went through a phase when I was in third grade, I really wanted glasses. I didn't need them, but I wanted them. Uh, there's a girl who in elementary school, she really wanted glasses because she thought it would be cool. All of her friends were starting to get glasses and she had one friend who had glasses that had the alphabet on them and she thought they were the coolest thing. But uh, she had pretty good vision. So she told her mom she needed glasses. She couldn't see straight. So she started faking it in school like she couldn't see. So her mom took her to an eye doctor and she was failing every question. If they asked her, you know, is it fuzzy? She said, it's clear. If it's clear, it's fuzzy. Messed it all up. The doctor didn't know what was wrong. So the doctor told the mom, you got to take her to a specialist. I do not know what is wrong with her. So the mom has to spend more money on the specialist, right? And the specialist, they're able to do some tests where it's not just asking questions. They're able to like examine the eye. And the specialist came and told the mom, I don't know what is going on with your daughter, but I just need you to know her eyesight is better than yours with your glasses on. <laughs> Which the mom was livid in this moment. If this was you, will you just raise your hand if this girl is in the audience today? Will you just raise your, Can you stand up where you are? Uh, Casey Joy Ross. <laughs> <clears throat> Happy Mother's Day, baby. <laughs> I want to invite my friend Wynn. Will you come and join me, Wynn, wherever you are? I want to invite Wynn Gannon to come and join me on the stage just for a moment. <clears throat> and just so everyone knows, she knew I was going to tell that story this morning, all right? I learned early on in my preaching career. Oops. Oh, there we go. All right. 
<clears throat> All right. <clears throat> and can we welcome Wynn to the stage with me this morning? Wynn. <laughs> Thanks for dressing up for church today, man. Yeah, well, <laughs> Let me grab you a mic. We're going to have a little talk. Let's see. There we go. All right, so when you were uh, finishing up school, right, to become a, what, what are you in school for? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so I just finished medical school, and I'm in my training for, uh, to be an ophthalmologist. Okay, so explain how, the, uh, what, what is that? So, <laughs> so, yeah, there's a little trick. You know, everybody gets ophthalmology and optometry confused. I did before I went to medical school and even in medical school. So the way to remember is the longer word takes a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> I got that. My mind. Yeah. All right, I can remember that. Longer the word, longer the school. Hey, tell me this, like, why, why did you choose to give your life to this? Because this is what you're going to be doing for a, a long time. So why have you chosen to, like, work with people's eyes and their sight? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Because uh, when I first went to medical school, uh, you know, I wanted to do medicine and, uh, and not eyeballs. And uh, the more I went through, I realized how important quality of life is and, uh, and how important vision is and being able to see to that quality of life. And um, as I looked through what was needed worldwide, I'm interested in missions. I saw that cataract surgery was number one needed surgery worldwide. And it's curing surgery. It's really nice to have things that you can cure in medicine. There's a lot of things that you just kind of help or put a Band-Aid on. But um, in ophthalmology, you can actually fix somebody and they come back in and say, wow, I see, you know, I see a difference, no pun intended, or maybe pun intended. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not for, yeah. Uh, and dude, a lot of times when I ask people, like, what are the five senses you would not want to lose? Sight's the one that they, that they want to hold on to for a long time. Hey, tell me this, man, let's, uh, uh, I want you just to impart some wisdom on us today, and, and this isn't scripted, I've, I have a couple of questions for you, and I just want you to speak into it. Talk to me about lenses, how do lenses work? What's good about them? Just, just impart some wisdom. What, what could help us understanding lenses? Sure. So I'll try to be brief. Uh, so, you know, the eye is round, and uh, all the, the sensors on the back of the eye are what allow you to see. It goes to the back part of your brain and, and interprets it. Um, so because it's round, you have to have a lens, which you're born with, that changes the shape of that light as it comes into your eye so that it can be picked up by those receptors. As you grow and get older, um, a lot of times the shape of your eye changes, the shape of the lens changes. You have um, uh, a lot of things that can happen to the lens. The lens gets harder, and, and as you get older and you start having to hold the newspaper, have your you know, loved ones hold the newspaper so you can stand back here and read it, uh, it's because your lens gets harder and changes shape. And so that's what glasses are for. Glasses help change the shape of the light and the way it hits your, your uh, lens in your eye. So it changes the shape here and then in your eye so that it lands perfectly on the back of your retina or the back of your eye. Yeah, have you, I'm just curious, man, have you seen the new glasses that colorblind people can put on to allow them to see color? Have you seen these? So I read about them. Uh, kind of interesting. So the way that we see light is uh, the way color reflects off of that. Color is a big spectrum. And uh, so what it does is it allows you to differentiate. People who are colorblind, that's not that they can't see red or green. Usually that's the most common, red and green. 
It's that they see it as brown, essentially, or kind of a gray, and they can't differentiate the two. So it's able to split the spectrum so that they are able to differentiate, even though it may not look green, per se, as it would to someone without color blindness, it, they can, are they able to see different colors. Okay. My dad's colorblind. Okay. So he just ordered, I don't know if you've seen these colorblind videos that have been released over the last, seems like, few months, where people are able to see color for the first time. My dad just got a pair, which is wild. Uh, but this video, like he didn't have this great response, you know. And I'm like, well, do it again and just make <laughs> one up so we can go viral with this thing, you know. Uh, hey, so here's the deal, man. Like sometimes, I don't know what you would tell my wife as an elementary age girl who just wanted glasses to be cool. But so if you want glasses, you know, you don't go to a Target and just look for the coolest pair, right? Like they're, they're tests you go through. So talk to me for a minute, like what, what happens, uh, e- even like what happens bad to our eyes if we put on the wrong set of lenses? Sure. So, uh, you know, the, the test he's talking about is the one where you go and they say one or two and you can't tell the difference. So you just make something up because they're asking you over and over again. <laughs> and then they keep going down the line. Finally, like, I don't know anymore. You know, so, um, so the idea is that the, the light uh, lands perfectly on the back of the eye. And, and we have the ability to kind of bend our lenses a little bit. Uh, and that's when we look far away and then we look up close and it might be a little blurry and then it finally comes into focus. That's our lens changing shape in our eye. So that's called accommodation. You're able to kind of um, change the shape a little bit, a small amount. And so if you have glasses that are bending the light inappropriately, so you know not just regular glasses like cosmetic glasses, but you borrow somebody else's glasses and something looks blurry and so your lens kind of changes shape. It can actually kind of stay like that and make your eyes worse over time because it uh, loses that elasticity and it kind of holds that form. Yeah. So, man, I, uh, I'm going to spend just a few minutes after you step down, and I'm going to talk about, like, what does this mean for how we engage Scripture, how we engage, you know, the world? Because the set of lenses we put on, it, it either helps that or it can become a great obstacle. So any other words of wisdom you would speak into this or even application for us that would help? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that, I think it's, when you mentioned it before, just kind of briefly, uh, I think it's an incredible metaphor for the way we look at scripture because everybody has these lenses that they approach scripture with, but, uh, the, the, the goal is the same. You're looking at the same scripture. You're looking at the same word of God. Everybody's seeing it differently. Um, in the same way you're looking at that awesome Snelling, uh, eye chart with the big E at the top, you know, and you're all trying to see the same thing and everybody's seeing it differently until you put those glasses on and change the shape of the light that you're looking at. And, and uh, I think it's just awesome that, you know, you, all you got to do is pray and ask God, hey, uh, you know, let me see the way you want me to see it. Yeah. And, uh, and those are your glasses. I don't know. That's, that's kind of my thoughts on it. And since you put a microphone in my hand and it's Mother's Day, I got to shout out to my <laughs> wonderful wife, honor her. She's, she's amazing. She's a beautiful mom. And I'm just so fortunate to have her in my life. Amen. All yeah, right. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much, man. I sure appreciate it. Yeah. <clears throat> ah, that's awesome. Let me, uh, I want you to see just a visual. So, so, so watch me with this because here's, here's what can easily happen in life uh, is we have a Bible and we want to know the Bible, But whether we admit it or not, and I think what's going to be so helpful for us today is to acknowledge and put words to what we often do in life, is there are times we pick up certain forms of lenses, and that is what we see the Bible and God's heart and God's mission through. 
Here's how this happens, all right? I grew up in a church where I didn't get this every week. But I remember people in my church that the lens they put on to see Scripture was the lens of we have to be right. And in order to be right, we need to know how to prove other people wrong. This isn't just true for Church of Christ people. This is true for a lot of different groups of Christianity. I want to be right, which means I need to prove other people wrong. So we, we would often engage the Bible to load up ammunition so we could have our arguments for against instrumental music, about uh, Lord's Supper, how often you take it, baptism, salvation, the church. And, and so, so we put on a lens because we have to be right. There are times we put on lenses that aren't bad. Some of you are in a stage in your life where the lens you put on to read the Bible is a lens of how do I become a better husband or a better wife, a better dad, a better mom? And it's, a, it's not a bad way to think of the Bible, to read the Bible, to even pray or think of God. But if that's the lens that you keep on, do you see at some point how that can keep you from growing into a whole rounded, full rounded disciple of Jesus? And this can, this can become really dangerous because it's very easy for us to pick up a form of lens which is our Democratic Party lens or Republican Party lens And now we're reading the Bible and engaging God and thinking about humans in the world through this lens, which ends up tainting the truth of God, the grace of God, and all it is God is trying to teach us. Do you see how this works? And the easiest thing to do today is to go home and try to say, no, 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 I always have the Bible here and everything else in the world is here. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times it's like this. So the question isn't, do I have a lens that I'm thinking about the Bible and faith and life through? It is, there are lenses that I use. So how can I wake up every single day asking the question and begging God, what is the primary lens I am allowing to shape my worldview today? Because if the lens I put on to engage God leads me to a more hatred in the world than love for the world, something's wrong with this lens I have on. The lens has to be the kingdom of God, the life of God, the reign of God, so that I can see everything else the way God sees it. I was a part of a youth retreat years ago. I was in high school, and uh, they, they made glasses for us that the eyes were cut out, and it was the shape of the cross in them. And we had to wear these for two straight days. It was the cheesiest looking thing, all right? And I care at that point in my life about looking cool, all right? And these were not cool. We had to do everything in them. We had to eat in them. Didn't have to sleep in them. We had to eat. When we played ball and did activities, we had to have these glasses on with this cross right in the middle. Isn't that a good way to live life, though? Like with the death, burial, and resurrection, the cross, Jesus, as the lens that we view all of life through. So what happens today when we allow the Great Commission and what Jesus has accomplished to be the foundation and the primary lens that we view all of life through? I want to end with this. I want you to look. A lot of times we begin the Great Commission in chapter 28, 18, or maybe we go all the way back to 16, but I want you to see the narrative that is right before that. And here's how it goes. In verse 11, while the women were on their way, Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. I want you to think just for a moment. A lot of times we don't think about what those guards had experienced or what ended up happening to them for the rest of their lives. These guards experienced a miracle of God. 
They saw angels, bright lights. They knew something had happened. So they go and they report to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money. They were paid off and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And I don't think any of us would say that we want to be the guard in the story. But I want us to see how possible and easy it is to know that Jesus is alive, but to live like he's not. To know in our hearts he's alive, but where our lives do not reflect the life of God in everything we do. So church, today may be a day of repentance for us. Not repentance to get saved again, but repentance that God, I have chosen and I've made choices in my life where I just want to make sure, God, that the lenses I am putting on to view Scripture and your heart and your mission is the lens that you want me to have. So take these three questions with you as we leave today. Three questions to reflect on, and I have an email. The internet was down today, so I wasn't able to get this to life groups earlier this morning. I'll shoot it out as soon as worship is over. I want you to think, how do I see God? How do I see God? Number two, how do I see the mission of God? And number three, and what we're going to build on in the coming weeks, is how do I see the world? And I would add to that, how do we see a world that God is so desperate to love and redeem? I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go to your places to receive people today. And if there's a word of blessing, a word of prayer that you need from some of these folks, I invite you to these places. We have prayer tables set up. If you want to go to one of our prayer tables and write out a request, we do take those very seriously, and we're honored to receive those from you. Church, can we stand and let's sing a couple of